just call everyone a white supremacist? You're a fucking white supremacist, Yoel. You're a white supremacist for saying that. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. Say hello, Mickey. Hello, everyone. So I'm surprised you managed to make it here today. I thought you would get stuck in a snowdrift and we would recover you sometime in uh, March or April. Yeah, today is uh, pretty intense out there. It took me it took me a good like 25 minutes to walk. Normally I bike, it's a five-minute ride, but I'm not going to ride in this this kind of weather. But yeah, we got a big, uh, big dump of snow. Uh, and, uh, actually, you know, it's, I actually think it's kind of beautiful. It, I, I, you know, kind of reminded me. So many years ago when I was in grad school, I, I took, uh, I took a holiday and went to backpacking in Morocco with a friend and the South East corner of Morocco touches on the Sahara a bit. So I, I did some camping in, uh, some massive sand dunes. Um, and I learned how to say, uh, get stoned in French by some Moroccan dudes. That was, that was really fun. Um, so, uh, bronzer la tête, which is like, you know, translation would be, uh, tanning your brain. Um, so I kind of like that. But anyhow, so we're, you know, on this big sand dude. And the weather today kind of reminds me of that, uh, cause it's blowing. It's really, uh, uh, it's a powdery snow. It's not a wet snow. So it's, yeah, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I think it comes down powdery like that when it's really cold, right? And it's it's cold as well today and usually cold for when it snows. So it's it's quite lovely, um, I got to say. It, it's less lovely when you are trying to get your car out in the morning and you get stuck on some ice. And uh, thank you to the two Portuguese dudes who happened to be passing by who uh, helped me push my car out. It's, uh, you know, the Toronto neighborliness that yeah. I uh, love. Yeah. Actually, that's something I really like about Canada in the winter is that it's just a common thing. Like you see a car kind of stuck, uh, you know, you just go help them push it out. So I did that the other day. I saw a taxi uh, taxi driver stuck and I just kind of pushed him out and then some dude kind of joined me. Um, and it's a pretty common occurrence. Yeah, it's lovely. It's like the weather really like brings everybody together. So yeah, there was one dude who was walking by who saw me stuck and he tried to help out and he couldn't do it by himself. And then his buddy was like in, was wandering by also for some reason. It was like, hey, come over here, you know, and together uh, they managed to push me out. So uh, my thanks to them. Yeah, because, you know, normally like it's, it's, you're screaming at each other like, fuck you, dude. But, but, but when it snows, you're actually helping each other out. So it's a nice change. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, we are here. We are inside. We're relatively warm and we are drinking a nice cold beer. What are we drinking? So I'm actually really happy about this beer. Uh, I was uh, in the neighborhood in Toronto called The Junction a couple of weekends ago with my brother-in-law, Josh Ball, who is the one who uh, wrote and composed our music, our theme music, uh, intro and outro music. And we went to a place called the Indie Pale House, uh, a little craft brew place. And they had an excellent selection of beer, all different varieties, as, as, as you'd imagine. Uh, and I figured I'd pick up some for us for the, the podcast. So right now we're drinking uh, something. What is this one called even? This is called the Instigator IPA. And this is a West Coast IPA. And the way that they describe it, I think is super accurate. They say it's the, the beer that started the craft brewing revolution, which is true. I remember in 97 when I started grad school, I started here. There were microbrews around, but it was really strong in, in, in the West Coast, like Oregon, California. Um, so, uh, and now that's the style, like a really, really hoppy IPA. So that's considered a West Coast IPA. Um, and this is a, you know, pretty standard West Coast IPA, pretty delicious. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's definitely got that hoppiness to it, but um, it's been a while. We've been on the Belgians, you know, thanks, Caitlin Werner, for that giant cache of Belgian beer. Um, and we finally sort of worked our way through that. So now we're on something a little different. All right. Well, well cheers. cheers. Yeah. So, Mickey, uh, I have a question for you. Um, I was on Twitter and I saw a lot of photos with you and uh, Tamler's stepmom. Christina Hoff Summers. Can you explain how that came about? <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, well, first of all, I want to say, I, I, I don't know if this is weird. Uh, I kind of have a crush on Christina Hoff yeah, Summers. Yeah, no, everybody knows you have a crush on <laughs> Christina Hoff Summers. I mean, uh, I, you know, she, she apparently listened. So, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm a fan of her politics. Uh, I find her a little bit reactionary and ideological myself, but I feel she does it with good humor and she does raise good points. She's not, uh, she's not a troll, although she is provocative. Nonetheless, I, I do like her. Um, and it's not just because she likes the show. So it was kind of a thrill to see her in person and have a, have a, have a couple of selfies with her. But essentially, uh, what a couple of, you know, a couple of weekends ago, uh, Lee Jessam emailed me and you, UL. And said, hey, there's this party being thrown by Quillette, Quillette Magazine, the online magazine. Um, do you guys want to come? And I'm like, uh, you know, I got mixed feelings about Quillette, the magazine. Uh, so I was like, you know, I don't know, but I mean, I like parties. <laughs> and uh, sure, I'll go party with, with, you know, with you, Lee. And I didn't, I mean, that was it. I was going to hang out with Lee. I knew Clay, Clay Routledge was going to be there too. And we had a podcast episode with him and he was lovely. So hanging out with Lee and Clay, I thought that would be fun. So we say yes. And then all the, before we know it, all these like Quillette bigwigs are, invi- we're, you know, we're invited to a brunch with all these Quillette bigwigs. So Christina Hoff Summers was there. Um, Deborah So was there. Claire Lehman eventually showed up. Um, Toby Young, Kathy Young, uh, a bunch of others, uh, you know, kind of uh, regular writers for Quillette were there and it was kind of, it was kind of weird actually. But, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting event. Uh, so what what did you think of it? What did I think of it? Uh, I was kind of preoccupied because I had lost my wallet earlier in the evening, so I don't think I got the most out of it. I was a little bit like, who are these like crazy free thinkers who are going to show up to the Quillette party? And it was sort of like people who looked like pretty affluent, like really, really like expensively dressed, like kind of like fancy looking folks. So like rich people and then like real awkward dudes. So uh, I think we allude to this briefly in the episode with Ted that's coming out in a couple of days. But we got engaged in these conversations where it was just like random dude would walk up to us and would be like, hey, hey, what are you guys up to? What are you talking about? Can I join? And then just stand there awkwardly. And you, Mickey, you were very good, as I've said, about engaging these folks and making them feel at ease, which I appreciate because I'm shit at that. Yeah. Well, I just wanted, I mean, it, I mean, it was awkward for me too. And you have these, and it happened more than once. It happened like, yeah, it happened times. several times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess it was kind of like, it had a flavor of a meetup in that way, right? Cause I guess it, I guess at meetups, I've never been to one, but I guess at the meetup, you just kind of go say hello to strangers. Um, and, but like if someone's there kind of standing in our little circle, I can't just ignore them. I can't just be like, like not make eye contact with this strange man. So I just, you know, would, would engage. And I thought not always, but some of the times the conversation ended up being kind of interesting. Um, but it was strange. Yeah. So, so what's your take overall? So, you know, I have mixed, I've mixed thoughts, mixed feelings about the event, uh, the party 
and and about the magazine more generally. So like on the pro side, um, and I know some people will, will will kind of react strongly and negatively to what I'm about to say, because um, they might not want to be associated with uh, Quillette magazine. But I gotta say, the vibe a little bit was kind of like Sips, like this, the 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 conference for the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. By that I mean, obviously, you know, people Quillette people and Sips people are different; they have different interests, but. I think what, why the feeling was similar and why it was very positive in, in some regard was that these are all people who kind of knew each other online. They followed each other on Twitter or they read some of these columnists. And it was kind of like a community meeting each other in the real, in the real world for the first time. So you can see a lot of people who were friends online meeting each other. And it was like the spirit of community, the spirit of shared, a shared mission. Um, yeah, a, a, re, a real spirit of camaraderie. And, and that kind of felt good. And that's also why I liked what I liked about Sips. Um, so I thought that was nice. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I kind of have a crush on uh, the factual feminist. So it was kind of cool meeting her. Um, and, you know, I should mention, I did not post the selfies. I was not going to, but she did. And then I was like, fuck it, she did. I'm going to do it too then. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't shying away from her you know, posing the selfie. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess it was interesting in that respect of like seeing some of these folks who are, you know, kind of higher profile or well known. Um, I I thought it was interesting that there, there were like talks also in in the party, which was sort of an awkward format because you're like standing around like having a conversation, and then it's like somebody's like trying to give a talk in the background. So like Michael Shermer, for example, who I know from his writing in the New Yorker, he was there. He gave a talk. I could barely hear what he was saying. Um, I when I could hear what the speakers were saying. There was a lot of like, they're just always on about the SJWs in a way that's like, gets kind of tedious. It's like, yes, we get it. You're mad at SJWs. You know, it's like over and over again with that stuff. Like, give it a rest already. Um, so that was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. So, so that would be like, I, I agree with that hundred percent. Like that, that was annoying. And that's annoying about Quillette more generally. Like, so the mission of Quillette, I like, and I, and the parties, the mission of the party too. I mean, so it's a, a, a gathering of, quote unquote, free thinkers of people who are following the truth where it leads them. There are no forbidden, no forbidden knowledge, etc. I like the spirit of that. But that means, you know, being completely open minded and not just picking on one side all the time. And what I end up seeing with Quillette and what I end up seeing like at the party was like this, you know, social justice baiting. And in fact, any times, you know, one of the speakers, this guy, Toby Young, who I, I didn't like at all, um, he would, he was such a rah-rah, like, fuck the SJWs. Um, and I was like, give me a fucking break, dude. Like, where's the free thinking? You're just fucking saying, like, you know, what every other monkey is saying. Um, so I thought that was fucking bullshit. Wait, are, are you saying you want to punch Toby Young in the face? <laughs> I'm not saying that. No, <laughs> definitely not saying that. I just found him annoying. Actually, I don't, I don't know who the guy is. Uh, I actually asked one of our listeners, I was having a little uh, uh, Twitter conversation uh, with one of our listeners, uh, and he, uh, he said that uh, he's kind of like a, a, a Ben Shapiro, a, a, you know, English Ben Sh- Sh- Shapiro. So I thought that gave some context to him. So I don't really know who he is. Um, but anyways, I didn't like him and, and, and I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the kind of like com- constant complaining about the excesses of the left. Hey, I get it. Like I, I, I see some of the excesses, excesses of the left, but there are excesses all around. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so before we move on from this, I feel like we should give a shout out to, uh, Pamela Presky of the fire.org who actually got us the invites to that party. And that was very kind of her. So thank you, Pamela. Don't take any of this as, uh, 
any sort of personal indictment of you. We were very appreciative of having been invited, and I was sincerely curious what this thing would look like. Um, now, one of the things that I noticed along with their um, their mad about SJWs is they're mad about online pylons and people who've been mobbed by SJWs on Twitter, which uh, leads us, I think, to the paper that we wanted to talk about today. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. That's actually a great, uh, a great tie-in. So- Thank you, Mickey. Thank you. I've been working on it. <laughs> it was like a coincidence. I don't know how you did that. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think you're right. I think you are right that uh, a big thing that, you know, uh, folks on Quillette or the people complain about the excess, excesses of the left complain about uh, is, yeah, pylons online. I don't think it's exclusively on the left. I think it's, I think you see it all around. Um, but so we decided to read, I saw this paper just came out uh, or maybe it's still in press. I'm not sure. But it's a paper called The Paradox of Viral Outrage, uh, authored by Takuya Sawoka and Benoit Monin. Uh, both at, um, at, at Stanford University, one in the Department of Psychology, one at the, uh, the business school. Um, and the article, I think, is really interesting uh, in the sense that it, it asks the question, um, do we uh, feel any sympathy for targets of viral outrage? So when there is a pylon, do we... Uh, do we feel sympathy for the person who's being piled on? Or another way of saying it is like, you know, when people repeatedly kind of, you know, uh, shame someone online, is it effective in, in making the person, the target of shame, uh, you know, is it effective in kind of lowering their status as perceived by others? And I mean, the short answer from this paper is no. Um, yes, you know, it, it, it seems like if someone tries to shame you online, it might, you know, it might, uh, lower your estimation, uh, or lower the estimation of the person being shamed online. But the more people who do it, uh, the more sympathy we have for that person and the less likely we are to kind of, uh, uh be swayed by the pylon. Yeah. So I think this paper, and I'm not saying this in a, in a way that's, um, meant to be, insulting or a bad thing, but it it just makes sense, right? So it makes sense that once you reach a certain like mass of people who are condemning this, you start to feel a little bit sympathetic towards the transgressor, um, assuming that the thing that they did, you know, wasn't awful, right? And, And so I think that one of the things that helped them get their effect here is that the uh, these were like tweets that were supposed to have been posted that were like loosely based on things that people actually did are things that were like, yeah, kind of like tasteless or offensive, but not like horrible, right? So it'd be like this woman who's standing at Arlington Cemetery in front of a sign that says quiet and respect, please. And she's like fake yelling and giving the camera the finger, right? So that's, yeah, if you're patriotic, that's certainly like kind of offensive, but it's not like the worst thing in the world, right? And for something like that, where you're like, yeah, that's bad. And they should probably be told to knock it off, right? Um, But it also seems disproportionate when 10 people are like, you're scum, you should die, right? Then you start to feel a little sympathy towards the person who did the bad thing. Oh, that's interesting. So you think that because the, so in all, in every study, it was kind of like a a mock social media post, typically on Twitter, a picture of someone doing something or just someone saying something um, offensive. Um, So you think because they were somewhat tame, uh, the pylon actually... Uh, 
you know, has the, the ironic effect of making you feel more sympathetic towards the person. Right. Now, they did, I, I, they got at that a bit, right? They had one study where the transgressor, the person who posted the offensive thing, was described as a white supremacist, right? And that had a main effect, like definitely people like the white supremacist less, um, but it didn't interact with their outreach manipulation, which we should probably say, you know, the way they manipulated this is they show either two comments saying you suck or 10 comments saying you suck, right? So the outrage condition is the 10 comments and the control condition is the two comments. And the idea is, you know, when you see those 10 comments, you're like, wow, that seems kind of disproportionate. And um, when the target was this white supremacist who made this like kind of racist tweet, um, they still were more sympathetic towards that white supremacist dude when he got 10 angry comments as opposed to when he got two angry comments. Now, what I wondered about was, let's say the tweet is like, kill all the Jews, put them in ovens or, or whatever, like pick your like horribly offensive things, you know, like uh, gay people deserve to die. Maybe at that point, people would be like, well, you know, that pile on is warranted because what that person said is so horrible. We just... Uh, I'm I'm curious whether they tested that. Yeah, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that uh, because, I mean, I guess I'm so used to seeing pylons online that are kind of of this flavor. They're pretty minor um, and uh, they aren't as deplorable as what you're describing. But yeah, that, that's a really great question. Um, would it, yeah, would you see 10 people kind of saying, you suck, you're an anti-Semite for the, you know, burn all Jews comment. Would that... Would you have any sympathy for that person? I don't, yeah, I have trouble seeing that happening. I mean, at a certain point, you're like, that comment is so horrible that whatever outrage is warranted, right? That just feels appropriate. It's just that there seems to be this disconnect between person says something kind of offensive, but not awful, and then there's this huge pile on. Right. So, okay. Uh, so, uh, so you mentioned the one about, you know, this kind of, this woman kind of giving the finger and pretending to scream in front of Arlington Cemetery in front of this sign that says, you know, silence and respect. I agree. That's pretty minor. Um, the, there's another one where it's a woman, I guess, with some sort of black tape on her face, or, or it looks a little bit like she's wearing a kind of a mud mask a little bit. And, and the tweet says, um, when you're just trying to fit in at your uh, HBCU, your historically black college or university, and you're where essentially someone in blackface saying they're trying to fit in in their you know historically black college, and you know the comments were like, "How dare you write such a disgusting racist post? I am horrified by your terrible, terrible post." So on and so forth. I mean, that was I mean, that's a pretty bad one, no? Uh, the post is pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's definitely offensive and tasteless. It doesn't show hatred it's no. not like i hate black people and i would like them to die no. right so that's that's kind of the the gap that i'm talking about there yeah yeah that, that that's a good one um i like that but i i thought it was kind of interesting about the study as well is that what how there were essentially very few things that actually moderated this effect so they predicted that because a white supremacist white supremacist would uh, is you know inherently less sympathetic that people won't feel bad for him when there's a pylon. But that wasn't, in fact, what they found. They found that, like, no. Like, yes, they, they find the white supremacist unsympathetic, but um, he's more sympathetic when there's a pylon against him. Um, so that's kind of interesting. They also found one uh, when there's someone in power. So I guess people in power who do naughty things uh, should be less sympathetic. And in fact, that's what they find. They're generally less sympathetic. But again, it didn't moderate this pylon effect such that you know those who were someone who's high high in power who did something bad who posted a, a crappy tweet a racist or sexist tweet um was liked more 
uh, or disliked less when there was a pylon against him, as opposed to when it was just, you know, one or two people, um, uh, you know, tweeting negative things about him. So I thought that was kind of interesting, that it was, it's a pretty powerful main effect. Right. Right. So um, I, I thought that was cool. And I like that we're starting to see more like, well, we predicted this, this would happen. And actually, we didn't get it in, you know, this is this was in psych science, right? So in a high prestige journal, I thought that was great. Um, I Yeah, I, I wondered about, you know, if the content itself is offensive enough, like might that moderate it? Yeah, my intuition is yes. Right. So I, I have a couple of kind of questions about the the, 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 uh, the paper, but also I want to like laud the authors here. They do this thing, which I've never seen before, which I would love for more studies to do. So they have a table one, their first table, um, and it lists all their studies. They've got six studies here and it lists the key p-value for each of the studies and the effect size for each of those key sets. Yeah. Um, and why that is wonderful is because essentially they're making it easy for someone like me as an editor or a reviewer or an interested author, and I do this often, I'll go p-curve papers. Um, now, of course, they did this because they knew the p-curve would look good, of course. Um, but nonetheless, it would be good, I think, I, 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 that'd be a great practice for all of us to start doing. Hey, here are the p values that we think are the uh, the key p values of our of our study, and and you know look at look at the go ahead tell us tell us what you think. I like the transparency with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was really cool. So okay, so now one more kind of substantive comment. So, um, so I'm kind of as I was reading the paper. I was thinking a little bit, of course, about um, the other paper on moral outrage that we discussed uh, in our episode with Jesse Single. So we had this uh, paper by Victoria Spring and da- Daryl Cameron and Mina Chikara, where they were arguing there's an upside to outrage, to moral outrage, and that it can mobilize people, it can lead to collective action, and it could, yeah, essentially can lead to societal change. And we had discussed how, you know, two good examples of moral outrage being effective was something like Me Too and maybe even the open science movement. That because there was outrage with both those causes, attitudes have changed about, again, sexual harassment uh, and about uh, transparent practices in science. Um, So I think I had that in in the back of my mind as I'm reading this article. And it struck me that, you know, they, I wish they had added a few other dependent variables here. Okay. Because what these authors are asking is what is your opinion of the poster? Okay, so what is your opinion of the person who posted, you know, herself in blackface? Or what's your opinion of the of the woman who posted herself with that disrespectful, you know, giving the finger in front of Arlington Cemetery? Um, and, and and then we see that, you know, when there's a pylon, we feel more sympathetic for the poster. But what I'm interested in is how do you feel about the issue? So how do you feel about um, the issue of racism? Do, you know, or... or like, was that a racist tweet? Do you think that was more racist that 10 people piled on versus two? Um, or what about zero? So it would have been nice to have a control group like, you know, how, you know, what do you think of this message? And then comparing after the pylon with 10 or two and seeing how, again, disgusted you feel by the message. And I wonder if people will feel... Uh, more moved in their attitudes, not about the person, but about the issue when there's a pylon. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So they always measure how do people feel about the issue before they give the manipulation, right? And in fact, they have like more failures of random assignment than I would think. It's weird. Like in every other study, they have a failure of random assignment such that people in one condition 
think like differently about the issue than people in the other, which shouldn't happen given that they haven't got the manipulation yet. So I don't know what's up with that. But it, but uh, what, what at least like I think to me comfort, comforting was that it wasn't always in the same direction. So right, it's just like it, it's just strange. It is like, strange. I don't really get it. But it, it probably I read that being like, man, I bet you so many of our studies. Are, are you know have failed randomization? We just don't have mechanisms to detect it. Yeah, but nonetheless, that was weird. I agree. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so I would think maybe it's a dyna- dynamic similar to. Um, I know that uh, Allison Chastine here at at U of T, along with a student, uh, Jordana Shirali, is looking at what happens when people confront various kinds of um, sexist remarks. What often happens is that so a third party observer is like, I don't like the confronter who seems like a bit of a jerk. But I also think that the remark is worse now that it's been pointed out to me, right? So you kind of pay this cost for confronting, but you do kind of change people's minds about the issue as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happened here too. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I knew that. I knew the, I certainly knew about the backfiring effect, that you dislike the person who who speaks up. I did not know that your actual attitudes changed. So in other words, the people who speak up are sacrificing themselves. Um, so that's super interesting, right? So that, le- that, that means that, I mean, that, that kind of flips the, cause in some ways you can read this message as like, this is like Twitter perfect, right? It's like Twitter sucks, pylons suck. They don't work. Don't do it. Like moral outrage is not going to get you what you want, but I suspect at least some of these people have earnest feelings about these issues. And to the extent that they do, they might be changing hearts and minds, even if they are disliked. Right. It's definitely possible. I mean, the thing is, like, what are you trying to accomplish? Who are you trying to reach? Is the point to convince the person who did the thing that you're reacting against that they did something wrong? Is it to convince third parties? Is it something else to, like, kind of shift the tone of the debate in some other way? So depending on what your goal is, I think you could say that this is effective or not. back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the easiest way to reach us both is probably on Twitter, where we are at Four Beers Pod. You can mention us, you can DM us, we'll both see that. Uh, you can email us if that's more your bag at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That email will go to both of us. Finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can find this episode and our back catalog and a contact form that will also email us if for some reason you like filling out web forms. So, Mickey, what are we drinking? We are drinking some more uh, of uh, the delicious brew from Indie Pale House. Uh, what we have right now is we're actually sharing a large bottle of what they're calling their Indie Table Beer. 
It's uh, something they call Fates and Furies. So they're saying it's not one of the regular beers, but I must admit their the description of what we're drinking exactly uh, has uh, left me wanting. So let's call it Mystery Beer from uh, the Indie Pale House. Let's see if we can figure it out just by tasting. What do, what do you say, Yoel? That sounds like a great idea. Right, so cheers. Cheers. Mm. It's citrusy, weedy, not too hoppy. Yeah, that's right. It has some of the sour notes, maybe a bit, bit bready, like so a little like kind of funky a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, not not happy at all, really. Right. All right. Well, uh, well done. I like it. It's sort of summery, just nice in the dead of winter. That's <laughs> right. It's reminding me of the sand dunes of uh, Morocco. Oh, exactly. <laughs> all right. So um, you have a book that you wanted to talk about. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so this, um, actually, this was recommended to us uh, by uh, my friend uh, Jay Van Babel, who is a former uh, grad student at University of Toronto, a faculty member now, an esteemed faculty member at, the, at New York University. Um, this book is called Kill All Normies. And I should probably know who the author is. Do you know who the author is? Oh, my God. No, that's not in your notes, really? It's not in my notes. <laughs> Jesus. While while I'm uh, you know talking, uh, or maybe when, while, while you're talking, I look up the author in a bit. Yeah, I know because my computer's too far away. You're gonna have to do this. All right, I'll do it. All in right. A little... Well, well, uh, why don't you tell us what is the book about, and uh, then maybe we can talk a bit about our reactions, and then you can look up this poor lady who we're forgetting. <laughs> At least we know the sex. Um, so this book is about. I, I mean, it's a. I think an interesting book. Uh, quite short. Uh, and it's about how essentially the, the the online culture in let's say the past four to six years, essentially asking you know what has changed like from when Barack Obama was elected in two thousand and eight to two thousand and sixteen. What transpired in those eight years that such that you know um, Hillary Clinton uh, using essentially the same tactics uh, as Barack Obama completely fell flat in her face. Uh, I mean, completely. She, she won the popular election, but she lost. But I mean, there, there was a, a, certainly a, 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 um, a reaction against her. And this book is essentially a book on the culture wars, the modern culture wars online. And what I find interesting about it is that it's a very different sort of culture war than what was waged uh, in, you know, the 80s or sorry, you know, the, the 80s and 90s or even the 60s. Um, so I think the more traditional culture wars would have, you know, older conservatives uh, versus younger uh, liberal, uh, secularized young people, essentially. So, you know, people who are, you know, pushing for, um, liberalizing sex, liberalizing education, um, rights, civil rights, um, versus an old guard that was, you know, pushing back against that. And now it seems like, at least according to this author, whose uh, name we will get in a couple of minutes, um, she's arguing that the cultural wars are quite different. And then now what we have are um, on the left and on the right, at least online, both groups seem to be kind of borrowing from the 60s transgressive playbook of kind of like pushing against the mainstream, pushing against the norm um, and uh, saying things uh, or doing things that are odd uh, that's well, that are transgressive, but we're seeing it now. What's I think what's different about this culture war is we're seeing that you know transgression occurring on the right as well, and it takes 
ugly forms, I think, um, disturbing forms. But it's unclear if these forms are legitimate. Uh, by that, I mean like whether the attitudes being expressed by um, the people who are expressing these attitudes, whether they're, you know, these attitudes are, are legitimate or whether they're just trolling. Um, so that's essentially what the book is about. How like, you know, kill all normies is the idea that like the middle ground, normal people have no place here. It's, you know, you're extreme on the left, uh, by that being, you know, um, you know, having lots of access on the left or you're extreme on the right where you're doing all kinds of racist, sexist, uh, crazy stuff. Um, and it's seen as a kind of expression of your youth or expression of, uh, what is the norm in, in, you know, in your little corner of the internet. So yeah, different kind of culture war. Right. So, um, I, I guess you didn't explicitly ask me what my take on this book was, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because, uh, that's just the kind of relationship we have. So, all right. First of all, I, I'm a little worried that by like talking about this book, this is an implicit endorsement to our readers that like we should we recommend it. Which I would say it's poorly written enough that I would hesitate to recommend that people read it unless they happen to be super interested in this kind of topic or these subcultures. So it did have what I thought was a lot of like interesting, like inside dirt on like, uh, I don't know, 4chan or whatever, which is a website. We'll get to that. Uh, but it was real badly written, like just like meandered, weird digression, sentences too long, like often just like no coherent argument at all. I was like, is this, a, was this written by a professional or is this just like some random internet citizen. Uh, it turns out this woman, nameless, Angela Nagel, Angela Nagel, I'm glad this is the point where he come up with her name, is a terrible writer. And she's a professional writer. Evidently, she has written professionally for real magazines, uh, where I hope to God she had an editor, because she really needs one. So like, I'm hesitant to endorse this just because it offended me personally, with how uh, lousily it was written. Um, do you want to jump in here? I see you I, sort of. I, you know, so I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, you know, someone who I mean, I, I like reading and uh, I, I like writing. Uh, so I agree that it wasn't it was it was poorly written. But I, I, so I read this over the Christmas break and I read it very quickly. It's not a very long book. Uh, I guess I was fascinated by the thesis and the ideas and uh, the research that she did. I mean, like hanging out on these. 4chan on these like you know on these reddit like subreddits uh like b subreddit uh i guess it's subreddit or is it no that's a 4chan board oh it's a 4chan board yeah. sorry like this one terrible board um i mean she was hanging out there and just like you know studying it and and, and i mean i i thank her for doing it so that I, I don't have to do it um but she uncovered some like uh distressing things Right. So, so here's a question that I had having read this. So she talks a lot about this website, 4chan, a lot about a specific board or, or forum subsite called, uh, B on that. Um, does any of this matter? Or is this just like, look, there's some teenage misfits. Now some of them hang out on the internet. This is an obscure website where these misfits get together and basically like talk a lot of shit and, you know, say some transgressive things. Like who cares? Teenagers are dicks. We've known that forever. Now some of them are dicks on the internet. Does it matter? Has it affected anything? Uh, well, I, I, I think so. I mean, uh, it seems like at least as described by, uh, by Angela Nagel, 
some of these 4chan, many of these 4chan people have gone and attacked people. I mean, attacked people, I mean, online. And some of them are actually are users of the site have actually committed crimes, murders, and I think she detailed a couple of murders, uh, and certainly rape threats. Um, so for Gamergate was, would, would be a great example of a lot of people on, you know, whether it be 4chan or 4chan, you know, um, adjacent sort of sites who were making women's lives miserable who were women who were interested in video games or criticizing video games. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's impactless. It's not just, you know, dudes, uh, you know, teenage boys being teenage boys. They're actually, engaging with people, threatening people, and people have had to, you know, leave the internet uh, or felt that they weren't safe in their daily life. So I don't know. I don't know how many people, you know, they've affected, but um, I would argue that, you know, it's probably too many, you know, even, even if it's a small number. Right. So I guess you can separate out those those different consequences, right? So when it comes to the really extreme stuff, like a handful of people have regrettably, you know, mass murdered some folks. It's like, yes, that is terrible. Um, unfortunately, in every generation, on the internet or not, there's going to be some mass murders. So I don't know if you remember um, Dylan Klebold uh, and uh, Harris, what was the dude's first name? Do you remember? Uh, no, I know. You're talking about the, 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 the Columbine. Columbine kids. Yeah. And there was all this talk about they play this video game, Doom, which is like a first person shooter. You run around a dungeon, and you like shoot aliens. It's like, yes, you know, um, some people who play Doom are mass murders. Uh, the rest of the millions of play people who play Doom are not mass murders. Now, like I think that Doom as a like kind of cultural phenomenon is much more kind of mainstream than like 4chan and B and, and all this this stuff. But like my point is just look, yeah, there's going to be crazy people who kill folks, like in every demographic that you look at. And I, I'm not sure that's necessarily indicative. But I, I mean I think what's different is that they discuss this on the board. So it's not just like, okay, you play Doom and then these, these dudes happen to play Doom and then go, you know, did this terrible thing in, in the Columbine uh, high school. Um, I mean, on 4chan and then B, I guess the, the, the board uh, B, they will talk specifically about, you know, uh, raping specific people or threatening to kill specific people or harassing people. Or, I mean, some of the things they, they, they'll talk about. So, um, is it called a rip roll? I think where someone will die, uh, whatever you know, uh, I'm not, you know, wh whatever circumstance it is, someone in high school, and they'll have a Facebook uh, memorial. And what some of these 4chan people will do is they will like make fun of the person who died, uh, or say they deserve to die, or I wish I had killed them, or I wish I had raped them. Um, and it's incredibly distressing for. In the friends and family of those people. And again, I, I don't know how often this is happening, but it's certainly not a trend that I want to applaud or encourage. And I must admit, reading this, so I've got a son who's, uh, who's 10 and just starting to get into video games. Um, not that I'm worried he's going to get into this, but, you know, it was in the back of my mind that, you know, left unmonitored on these sites. I mean, who knows? You can find all kinds of ugliness. And I would rather he not find this kind of ugliness. Right. So 
the Rick rolling, by the way, is is something else, which is just uh, posting uh, a link to a Rick Astley video. No, rip roll. It's at the, it's in there, maybe something else. Yeah, I I actually did. So I I know what you're talking about. Like I forget the the name that it has. Oh, but, okay, it's a different name. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Rick Astley video. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Which is a, like sort of funny and innocuous. Yes. Um, so yeah, okay. Some of these kids are are dicks, and uh, this allows them to organize themselves and be dicks in an organized fashion. Which is, I guess, something new, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of, like, teenagers are just terrible. Teenage boys, particularly, are just terrible. And they've always been terrible. And now they're able to organize on the internet to be terrible, like, en masse. And, th- yeah, that's 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 bad. I agree. Is it uh, a significant cultural phenomenon? Well, okay, so according to the book, uh, you know, a lot of the book was, was spent discussing Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, so this is... Um, a now disgraced, uh, I don't want to call him a journalist, uh, an opinion writer, uh, a troll. He's a fucking troll. Um, he, I guess, wrote for Breitbart for a little bit. Uh, he might have written their tech column. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, there in charge of their like tech vertical. Right. And uh, he had, I and mean, so he's, uh, uh, he had a, a tour of the United States, which was essentially like pushing against you know, one left wing, uh, you know, accept the truth after another and making fun of it uh, and, you know, really being a troll and attacking people. And he would like, you know, so I guess he was invited to give a talk at Berkeley and that, you know, he was essentially uh, deplatformed, uh, mass writing on this. And he, he actually couldn't give a talk because, uh, you know, it was just unsafe. Um, but, you know, he has a following. Uh, and he, one would could argue, he rep- he's the, a leader of this kind of movement, of this kind of transgressive right-wing movement. So this is a very different kind of right-wing than, you know, uh, your parents' conservatives, right? Right, right. I, I mean, I think this is sort of illustrating my point, though, because, like, that was a part of the book that, to me, now, like, even now— felt kind of dated because he was Milo, such a flash in the pan. He's uh, stumbled into some controversy about like endorsing ch- sex between like, you know, pubescent boys and older men or something. I, d- I didn't even follow the details, but anyway, like, you know, he got fired from Breitbart, people disowned him. And, and where is he now? He's, he's vanished. Right. So I feel like maybe the risk of obsessing about all this stuff is like, these people really don't matter. They create noise on the internet. You know, maybe they like, they're like chum for Tucker Carlson on Fox News to be like, uh, repressive leftists won't let Milo Yiannopoulos like give his like daring message. And while that's happening, I mean, the real action is in like, you know, uh, tax cuts, um, detaining people at the border, separating uh, asylum seekers from their families, all of this stuff. And this is the stuff that like gets implemented not by, 14 year olds on the internet, but by like real adults working for, sorry, this is like a very partisan political rant, but like the Trump administration, right? And that, that's the stuff that matters. That's the stuff that's actually affecting people's lives. And this stuff is just like, you know, more, more noise than anything else. So you don't see I me, mean, I mean, uh, the author here was trying to make a direct connection between these. So yes, I mean, the 14 year old boys aren't voting. Um, but he, you know, she was trying to make a direct connection between this crowd of people, again, not the teenagers who can't vote, but they're, let's say they're 20 something, um, uh, you know, contemporaries, um, and, you know, support for Trump. The idea being like, 
some segment of the population would vote for Trump as a fuck you. As like, this is the ultimate in transgressions. My parents, you know, are liberal. They're lefties. They have pink hair themselves. I don't want to fucking have pink hair. I want to vote for fucking Trump. I want to wear a MAGA hat. I want to say racist stuff um, because that's going to get my parents riled up. That's going to get other adults uh, that... Uh, that are supposed to be in charge of me riled up and you know you know back when we were younger uh when we were teenagers you know we'd get a strange haircut we'd listen to different kinds of music um and that might upset our parents uh, whereas you know if your parents are lefties well that's not going to work for them so i think part of the message here was that like their you know transgression is not just for the left it's yeah. for the right as well. Right. So I guess like you could look at that two ways. First, was that electorally important? And there I'm 100% not convinced. Or at the very least, like I would need to see a lot more evidence before believing that that was any sort of important factor in the outcome of the 2016 election. Um, and, but then you could say like, is that psychologically interesting? And there I think like you're onto something that is kind of interesting. Um, sidebar. What is the weirdest haircut you've ever had? <laughs> well, so actually, I've had a very strange relationship with my hair. I really dislike my hair. And in fact, I'm going to be taking your haircut soon, Yoel, totally shaving it off. Is it because you're a self-hating Jew? And you have a Jew <laughs> uh, well, so I've got the Jew fro, so that's part of it. Uh, why I'm going to shave it off now is because, you know, the bald spot from the front is meeting the bald scot bald spot from the back they're 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 touching hands now they're they're growing into each other yeah isn't it a staggering moment where like because you see yourself from the front right and then you see a picture or something from the back and you're like oh shit i had no idea that's exactly what happened i was i was giving gave a keynote address in in uh in the netherlands and people took photos of me and i'm like holy fucking shit here i am thinking i'm so suave i wore like a you know like a cool black suit and it was like i'm a fucking ass i like i i'm the dude with that fucking haircut um, so yeah, I, I never, you know, I once got a haircut that was, I guess it would be kind of like, um, uh, it was really, really short in the sides and I poofed out kind of a mushroom. It looked like a big mushroom. <laughs> and my mom came home from, from the hairdresser and my mom looked at me and she's like, you're going back to the hairdresser and you're going to get a normal haircut. Uh, and that was uh, very upsetting. So what ended up happening? I went back to the hairdresser. I got it kind of super short, and I hated it. And then I wore a back in the day when Domino's Pizza was kind of like they had these cool set of commercials, and you know, I wore their delivery man hat because I hated my haircut so much. Um, but that was I couldn't even rebel that way, dude. So. Uh, so where were we? <laughs> we were talking about what's transgressive. And I, I think you made the interesting point that like, look, in these spaces that really kind of lean predominantly left, um, being conservative can be sort of a way to rebel or to show that you're, you're transgressive. So uh, actually, uh, this reminded me of a conversation that I had with a friend recently, uh, and uh, this... Uh, person lives in a very liberal coastal enclave, was talking about their son, who's um, around 13, I think, who was very into Ben Shapiro. And her son was like, Ben Shapiro is the best. He really like just tells it to the liberals, you know? And and it's like, well, you know, you don't want to be like, yeah, Ben Shapiro sucks because then it's like, well, screw you. What do you know? Right? Like you, you, you just, you just kind of have to hope they grow out of it, I guess. Maybe you like start liking him as well, just to like 
so that he will then be turned off. Right. Right. Be like, nah, Ben Shapiro's real cool. You're right. <laughs> you you he sold pwned me. the liberals, man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a way of like pushing back against, look, it's reactance, right? People don't like to be told what to think. And if everybody's like, oh, those things are off limits. And somebody comes along and is like, actually, you can tell them to go fuck themselves. It's like, that's very attractive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've like, like so one kind of theme running through the book is that, so she argues that this idea, transgression, which I think is typically associated with the left, she argues it's just an accident, right? I mean, um, you know, it's just it's an accident that the left left leftists are the first ones who start kind of uh, using this as a way to push culture, um, and that now she's noticing transgression on the right as well. And you're absolutely right. So I, you know. I've mentioned this a few times in, in the podcast. I'm an atheist and I grew up in a very religious home. Um, and I occasionally have thoughts like, holy shit, imagine my kids end up being religious. Like I would fucking lose my shit, I think. I would really be upset about that and like strongly try to uh, persuade them that they are going in the wrong direction. Um, and this would be some variant of that. And I would be, I would be appalled. Imagine, imagine, I, I imagine my my sweet son, like in three or four years, start saying racist shit, or like I, I discovered, like he's on some crazy chat board where, um, chat room where he's saying sexist, uh, racist stuff. Like I would, I don't know what the fuck I would do. Yeah, that would be terrible. But I, I am tempted uh, to pay Jonah like a hundred bucks to like adopt some religion, you know, <laughs> get like a real hardcore Jew just to show you. Yeah, I, I would not be happy. Yeah, Do you, it sort of reminds me of you know the Philip Ross story, the conversion of the Jews, where the kid gets up on the roof of the temple and uh, he says he's going to jump unless they acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and their Savior. No, Just I don't know that. A, yeah, it's the same thing, right? It's like a fuck you to the uh, to the higher ups, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, so, so do you do you think? I mean, do you think that's true? I mean, do you th- do you see this as like a, a, a trend? Do, so again, so the, the idea here, the kill all normies idea, is that like normal people are. Are, are being left out. I mean, at least on these kind of this culture war stuff. So the mainstream, the center um, is being marginalized in some way, um, both by the, you know, by, by, by the left, which we, I think we've discussed quite a bit in the, in, in the podcasts um, where, you know, I think we've talked about excess, excesses at the left, but also on the right where like, you know, a, a traditional, a regular conservative would be, a, I think would be appalled by, by what they're seeing in their name as well. Right. So I think the thing to keep in mind is how marginal all of these communities are. Like, so on the right, uh, 4chan, on the left, I guess the analog she uh, sets up is Tumblr. Um, I guess there's left spaces on Twitter as well. Like, these are all incredibly, like, numerically, just like really, really small groups, right? So, like, if you talk about, like, where are people going on the internet, most people are going to, like, Facebook and Pinterest, right? They're not going to 4chan. Most people are getting their political news still from some variety of mainstream media, whether that's Fox or CNN or whatever, The Times. So I don't see that these spaces are actually all that influential in the broader dialogue. Maybe that's my blindness, right? Maybe because I'm not in them. Um, I'm reading the times. Maybe I'm missing how important they are. But she didn't make the case 
in a way that convinced me that this was anything other than like small, weird subcultures. But I mean, I mean, could we argue that, uh, you know, we had a whole show on the, on the intellectual dark web. So couldn't we argue that the intellectual dark web is some sort of growth, outgrowth of this? It's like the more respectable version of this or like, you know, not alt-right, but alt-light, right? So it's like, um, uh, Again, I, I kind of talked about Quillette earlier, like, you know, you know, tr- you know, uh, speaking the forbidden truths, right? And slightly conservative or very conservative. So isn't this, you know, Jordan Peterson, I think, you know, is probably, a, a, you know, championed by lots of, you know, folks on 4chan, um, on that darker corner of, of the web. Um, so, I mean, yes, I think she talks about the more extreme versions of this, but there... <laughs> Another argument that she makes is that you know, the, the 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 right mission now is to change culture, not to not to win. You win politics by winning culture, by changing culture, and maybe they're they're doing this. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's a very a kind of different thing from the outset. In that, like somebody like uh, Sam Harris or um, even like Ben Shapiro are trying to appeal broadly. Right. And, and B, by its nature, is trying to be exclusive. Right. Tumblr, by its nature, is trying to be exclusive. You have to master like the 12 levels of social justice jargon to even understand what they're talking what about. What level are you? Uh, I'm like level zero, man. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm level a negative, are you? I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You're in the red. Uh, so, so, right. Like the, the jargon of B is deliberately like in joke, self referential. You know, they're, they're trying to keep people out, right? Is Ben Shapiro trying to keep people out? No. He's like, he's trying to convince people, normal people, like those folks, the IDW folks are appealing to the normies, I would say, like trying to cast as broad a net as possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, okay, but we've maybe talked a little bit or a lot uh, about the the right side here, and actually, the book I think really spends most of the time detailing the the excesses of the right. Um, but she spends at least one chapter talking about the excesses of the left, which we I think, and again, in the podcast we talk a lot about. But I want to push back against one thing you said, which is that. You know, these are marginalized communities. Yeah, I agree. 4chan is marginalized. B, I don't know the fuck that is. I never want to go there. And if anybody I know has been there, I might stop being their friend. Um, but I feel the stuff she talks about on the left is not that weird. I don't think it's that um, unusual. Okay? So, and again, she spends very little time talking about it. But essentially, she's just talking about... Um, you know, uh, this is one line where she talks about like, um, uh, you know, fetishizing uh, people without power, fetishizing even people with mental illness, um, and, and or, or at least you know, again, people who are uh, yeah, powerless. I think to some extent, um, and I think you, I mean, I, I think her choice of words, fe- you know, fetishizing is interesting, um, but I think you do see. S- elements of this in not just, you know, Tumblr. Um, you see it in the New York Times. You see it in, in other publications. So, um, so this just ran across my Twitter feed just last week. Um, and it was someone who, someone tweeted this who is, um, you know, not right wing, not, you know, even never makes fun of social justice stuff ever, but yet couldn't help himself here. Um, 
And the this is from this, I'm I'm not sure what kind of website this is, a New York Eater. Um, and essentially it's an article uh, looking at the most common words used uh, by Yelp reviewers. And apparently the word authentic is used a lot uh, among Yelp reviewers. And the title of the article is Yelp reviewers authenticity fetish is white supremacy in action. So in other words, going from finding that the word authentic or authenticity is used a lot by Yelp reviewers from there to go to that's white supremacists. Now, just again, to kind of add a little bit of flavor and color to, to this. So this is New York Eater. Who the fuck? I don't know what the fuck that is. Um, but I don't think it's like a crazy website. It's not 4chan of, of the eating world. Um, but just to give you an example. So, uh, you know, in, in the dust up we were involved with, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I noticed. So, you know, um, and t- on Twitter, you can see who follows you. You can also see p- uh, who... Uh, that people put you on various kinds of lists, you know? And like, you know, I see occasionally people put me on lists. They put me on like psychology professor or science or open science, stuff like that, okay? So after our little dust up, I had three lists that I was included in, okay? So the first one was mansplainers. Um, uh, The second one, and by the way, I should say, the reason I was put on this list was because I asked for evidence about a... A claim of fact. Um, so one was mansplainers lists. The second was, uh, uh, oh shit, what was the other one? Oh, misogynist, misogynist. <laughs> and the third one was the best, the absolute best, white supremacists. So I'm on a list of white supremacists from this one crazy person on Twitter. Um, so I mean, maybe I just defeated my own point by calling this person crazy. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think there is a kill all normies element here. Uh, I think there is, you know, some, you know, excess here where, you know, again, a fetishization of like white supremacy. Justin Trudeau, like our woke prime minister, like Jordan Peterson, like rails against him constantly. He's He's criticized a lot in our country in right-wing circles for being the woke prime minister. He, too, has been called a white supremacist. So, I mean, so these aren't all crazy people saying this. This is not all, uh, you know, fringe websites that are saying this. These are mainstream websites. These are the, the New York Times saying this, too, on occasion. Yeah, I I think that's um, a reflection of this interesting dynamic that we've talked about before, which is that in the U.S., um, the cultural institutions that are influential tend to be left-dominated, whereas political institutions tend to be more right-dominated. Um, so that there's an interesting dynamic where each side can point to things that like reflect that they're the embattled, you know, minority. Right. So everybody gets to feel like they're constantly in this existential struggle and the deck is stacked against them. Um, and they're both kind of right. Right. So like as a conservative, yeah, I think it's legitimate to feel like mainstream media is made up of people who are largely unsympathetic to you. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think we have time to really get into this, but at some point we should talk about 
uh, the uh, Covington High School kids with the MAGA hats and the Native American dude, which is like a really interesting reflection of this, right? So like I, I some of the more conservative-leaning people that I read are like, look, this is really a reflection of like this inherent bias um, against people like us and uh, the media is willing to jump to these very extreme conclusions um, based on very little. Um, and this is exactly what we're talking about when we say like they're biased against us, right? So I don't, I don't think they're wrong about that at all. Um, I do think we live in these left adjacent spaces. So we are more likely to see the left wing, wing extremes, right? If we lived in more right wing adjacent spaces, I think we would remember the Quillette party, the after party, some dude showed up and was like, I'm kind of into eugenics. Oh God. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. That was, so, that was fucking frightening. Yeah, exactly. So like if we hang out in those spaces, I bet you we would on the regular run into the eugenicists. Just my personal bias, I would rather have the people yelling at me about stuff on Twitter and adding me to stupid lists about like, you know, being a mansplainer or whatever than than eugenics. But, you know, pick your poison. By the way, if you block them, they can't put you on lists anymore. Ah, so she blocked this person. I blocked this lady. She's Canadian. Uh, did she put you on that same list as well? No, I didn't. The thing is, I'm fucking offended. I did not get put on the white supremacist list. I only got put on the misogynist what list. The and fuck? I'm like, I want to be on the fucking white supremacist <laughs> and list. And you were way more in there than I was. I was I was just preaching white supremacy. <laughs> what does a guy have to do, you know, to get put on the list? I just asked for evidence. It's all I asked for. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but it's, so I screenshotted that because I'm like, I might even put that as my... Um, my Twitter background. Oh, don't give them the satisfaction. <laughs> they just want attention, I suppose. I mean, but I guess, I guess that the 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 reason I, I was mentioning this is that it just seems like you know, I guess there are crazies all around. Um, there are, are extremists, you know, on both sides. You're right. We 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 tend to see the more of the left ones, and maybe because we're both on the left, um, we are bothered more by excesses of the left. Um, and we're more willing to kind of write off the right. So we kind of put them all together. So whether you're on 4chan or you're just, you know, a Trump supporter or just a more moderate, uh, conservative, we might lump you in this one group. So maybe we're not seeing the nuances there to the same extent. Um, but so you don't buy that argument at all. You don't buy the argument. Again, the argument being that extreme trend, you know, oh, not extreme, but transgressive voices are kind of winning out on social media uh, and on online, let's say, more generally. Um, they're, the, they're the powerful voices. They're the strong voices. Maybe this, they're not the majority, but the majority aren't talking. Uh, and as a result, they are moving culture. So they're moving, you know, if you're, if you're on the left, you're, you're being moved further on the left because you're the only people who are talking are these extreme voices. And if you're on the right, you're being moved further to the right because, again, the, most of the people who are talking are on the extreme right. And as a result, you get, you get the polarization that we're seeing now. Although, just to remind us of the episode from, with Ann Wilson, I think the perception of polarization is greater than it actually is. But nonetheless, we are more polarized than we've ever been. I think that's true, arguably, of Twitter. Um, but, you know, most people aren't on Twitter. So Twitter has a big influence because lots and lots of journalists and other media folks are on Twitter, right? And I think they 
overreact to what Twitter thinks because they're so exposed to it. And I think we may look back in 10 years and be like, it was a horrific mistake to let Twitter occupy this big space in our kind of like the elite discourse, because I think it is super, super distorting. When it comes to normal people, no, I don't think that this is particularly influential or important. I mean, if it pushes the elites in a certain direction, then it may be, right? But 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 just because like they happen to be like susceptible to that by virtue of being there. So you're just saying I'm I'm seeing this because I'm fucking on Twitter all the time. You gotta fucking get off Twitter. Go to Bali. <laughs> delete your Twitter. <laughs> I was very close uh, to, to to deleting my Facebook account. Uh, oh, I turned mine off. Yeah, I know you did. So, so I remember from our, our our social media episode, you'd mentioned it to me, and I'm like, fuck. I never am on this site other than to lurk on a couple of methods pages. Um, I'm never on it, but Twitter. I don't know, man. It's like, it's the 10% good that keeps me going. But I have, um, I've made a pact with myself that I will only be on it once a day, uh, like for like 30, 45 minutes a day in the evenings uh, when I've got downtime in Bali. So what time is that uh, East Coast time? <laughs> I think it's going to be approximately uh, 4 a.m., all right, so if you want to troll Mickey, that's the time to do it. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's—I must admit, like it's—it's. It, it's, this is like a, another theme of ours. Outrage is a theme of ours, and fucking complaining about social media is a theme, theme of ours. It fucking drives me crazy. Like I, 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 I'm more upset about the stuff I see on social media than pretty much anything else. And I don't know what the fuck I'm doing on it. It makes me miserable. You just gotta like. It, Examine each account you follow on Twitter and ask yourself, does this add joy to my life? And if no, <laughs> are you Maria Kondo on me now? Do you th- There's a lot of wisdom there, Mickey. 